0: listeners, this is your host Sadia Khan. I am so excited for today's episode but also because fall is almost here. It is my favorite season. You know, I don't know why but summer makes me anxious and winter makes me sad. But fall makes my heart sing. And we have an amazing lineup of guests for the fall season. Plus, we are no longer working within certain themes. So it'll be fun to talk about love and relationships on one episode and then civic engagement on the other. If you have any ideas to share with us, we want you to listen to stuff that you care about on our platform, your platform. I'm also really excited about today's episode because it talks about something that impacts all of us, media. With the World Wide Web, information is no longer relegated to encyclopedias and print. It's at our fingertips, so specific and vast. Media is an industry that is pushing the boundaries of what and how we relate to each other. Today's episode is an exciting one because it takes this ginormous issue of mass communication and bears it down to the consumer, us individuals, and our actions. You know what? We should be asking ourselves such questions more, right? What role do we play as consumers of media? Why do we focus on certain trends and tropes? Do we actually know how to read or are we being fed information without actually criticizing it or even understanding it?
1: No, well, we need to read more immigrant writers. We need to read more queer writers because that will exercise our empathy muscles. And ultimately what it ends up reducing the work of writers of color too is that what writers of color end up acting as kinds of personal trainers, which is to say we're supposed to train these empathy muscles in this presumed white readership which is to say that we end up going to writers of color to learn the specific is what i say in the book and yet we go to white writers to feel the universal
0: today's guest elaine castillo authored the newly released book how to read now essays which attempts to answer these questions by observing american books and movies through bipark lens interesting right Elaine takes a close look at TV shows like The Watchman and Writings from Joanne Didion to explore the politics of reading and how to read with intent. Born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area, where she graduated from UC Berkeley and obtained her MA in Creative Life and Writing at the University of London, Elaine is a Filipino-American Her parents migrated from the Philippines in the 70s during the Marcos dictatorship, a story that inspired her 2018 debut novel, America is not the heart. Raised by NPR, the Boston Globe, the San Francisco Chronicle and others, Castillo's book follows hero, a Filipino immigrant born to an established family and later radicalized during the Marcos regime and her escape to the Bay Area after being captured and tortured by the dictatorship. So let's get started. Thank you so much Elaine for coming on Immigrantly. I can see all these books in the background <laughs> and I am loving it because I am somebody who doesn't read as many books and I am a slow reader so I rely on podcasting instead <laughs> but I live vicariously through other writers and readers.
1: Well, the most important part of that background is my dogs. You yeah, know, yeah. Oh sleepy. my gosh. <laughs> yes, we missed that. She's napping. She's very moody.
0: Yeah, how can you
1: (laughs) miss her, right?
0: (laughs) So we'll get to your book, which is so good, How to Read Now. Oh, thank you. I have plenty of questions around that. But let's go back to your childhood. I was listening to a lot of interviews that you did, and I was fascinated by your story. Your dad instilled Mm -hmm. love of reading in you, Mm -hmm. and you were reading stuff at a very young age, which people would not even believe that you were and you had a way around that to convince your teachers as to what you were reading and what you (laughs) weren't. So tell us, how has that journey been like? And when was the first time you felt like books were such an important or integral part of who you are?
1: I don't think I can remember a time that I wasn't reading or that I didn't have books. I mean, there's a myth I don't actually believe this story, but this is the story my mom likes to tell when she wants to show off. (laughs) We were in the grocery checkout line. I was very young. I mean, according to my mom, I was two. That's not humanly possible. So I think (laughs) add a couple years to it anyway. But my mom insists that I was two. I mean, obviously, you can tell where I become a storyteller from. (laughs) But she said that I was reading, I think, like Time or we know one of those grocery checkout magazines. Right, those trashy magazines (laughs) or something like that. Yeah, like Time or Newsweek or something like that. You know, like um, sensational news and. I was reading it or I had my nose in it and I think like a high school kid behind her asked my mom like is she really reading that and I apparently overheard it, and this will tell you something about my personality, I overheard it and got so annoyed that my mom says I started reading aloud from the magazine. (laughs) So that tells you that I was a real asshole even when I was young. (laughs) But it's the kind of primordial story my mom likes to tell. My aunties and uncles used to say they never saw my face because at the dinner table there would be a plate here and then in front of the plate, like a wall, would be a book. So they were like, well, we didn't know what you looked like until you were around 10 or so. (laughs) We never saw your face.
0: That's such a great habit because it opens the world to an individual. right? You can transport to whatever place. Something that I wish I could instill in my kids because my husband is a great reader. He loves to read. He cannot even go to sleep without reading. (laughs) And I'm somebody who's like, okay, give me podcasts. That's where I yeah. get my information from. How has that journey been like for you, Elaine, reading as a young child and then publishing your own book, that manifestation? Mm. What was it like? Can you summarize it in a few sentences for us?
1: Yeah, I mean, in a few sentences, you'll find out that I'm not very good at summarizing. <laughs> I'm a long form person. But yeah, I talk a lot about it, especially towards the beginning of the book about how my father was really the person who introduced me to books. Mm. He was sort of a Huge reader. I mean, by the time that I was born, he was a security guard. My mom was a nurse. So it was like a very sort of typical working class Filipino family. But his background in the Philippines before I was born, because he was 54 by the time I was born. So he'd lived several other lives by the time I was born in California. He came from an upper middle class family. He was an orthopedic surgeon. So he had a kind of facility with reading in English and communicating English and reading books in English that my mom, for example, didn't have, who grew up comparatively in poverty. So I think while I've always loved books, I've always been aware also that the gift of books was also one that was class inflected. You know, it was something that Mm. was ultimately influenced by the fact that my father came from the class background that he came from and had the kind of facility with literacy, with books that he was not intimidated by that world, Ah. which is an enormous privilege. So I'm conscious that my reading life is a gift. It's an inheritance. It's a labor of love, but it's not untouched by political questions of class or of access. Because he was a surgeon and then a security guard, he was never like an English major. He was never a literature. You know, he had never gone through the kind of more humanities-based pathways of how to become a reader. So he didn't teach me things like, now you're learning nineteenth century English literature the way you would if you were an English major. Right. You know it was never that. It was like, now read James Joyce and now read Plato. And it was all so all over the place, And it was so genreless and a very personal, very idiosyncratic. I mean, ultimately, I think, He was giving me his own biography in books, I think, a little bit. And what you said earlier about how books transport you, I mean, sometimes I'm a little hesitant around that idea, but now I think that potentially for my dad, because he felt so ultimately alienated, he really felt his life in America was in some way very much, I think to him, felt like one of exile. He never really considered America home. Mm -hmm. I think to some extent that might be true of him, actually, less so of me. I think it might be truer of him that... His reading life allowed him to be in a place other than America. In that sense, to give that kind of cultural inheritance to me in a way that was translatable, in a way that is different from he couldn't give his hometown to me in the same way, right? I mean, I didn't grow up in Illocazor, I didn't grow up in Vegan. I, I would never have the day to day relationship with the place that he grew up in, but I could have, you know, Kamasman, which he loved.
0: Right. So you're second gen kid. You were born here. Given that your parents immigrated from the Philippines and your father never felt America was home, I have these feelings where there are days when I'm more American and then there are days when I'm more Pakistani and Mm. I feel like I don't fit in anywhere anymore. Did that feeling of being a nomad transfer onto you or are you firmly grounded in america being your home
1: i actually think both i don't think there's a binary between those two which is to say i think certainly when i was younger i felt he'd passed on a certain kind of outsider feeling, a kind of exilic feeling, which contributed to when we would read American literature and, you know, in the actual classes at school and people would go, oh, okay, this is American literature and I would read the books and this doesn't bear any resemblance to the America that I know. You know, I grew up in what's now usually very pejoratively or in a kind of fear-mongering way called a majority-minority town. I mean, my town was majority Filipino, Vietnamese, Mexican, 60% of the population speak a language other than English. All the mayors that I grew up with are Filipino or Vietnamese and that was my America period right so for me I think on the one hand I felt that kind of exilic relationship to America or a critical relationship to America ultimately that he passed on but I don't think that because I felt that that made me less American or that made me less grounded in America I think that's a fully valid and grounded way to be American is to be highly critical of it
0: absolutely
1: feel dislocated in it is to feel those ultimately diffuse conflicted ambivalent feelings To me, it doesn't feel like there's a binary between there. And because, you know, I grew up in a town where I was never the only Filipina in the class, I was never different or extraordinary in that way because of the community that I grew up in. Hmm. So That's been an enormous gift also because I didn't have whiteness as my reference hmm. within the community that I grew up in obviously if you turn on the television and I remember watching Beverly Hills 90210 or Baywatch and being like California might as well be Mars <laughs> I don't <laughs> this is science fiction I've never seen anyone like this I don't recognize this California so Star Trek made more sense to me these are the voyages of the starship enterprise I love that Elaine and you're
0: absolutely right there is no one definition of being American or America and the beauty of America is that every individual has so many different intersectionalities right whether it's cultural or ethnic religious national and that's what makes Americans Americans fast forward to today your book I'm loving every moment of it and what I am so proud of is the fact that somebody was able to write this I think oh. we'd waited too long for someone to write something like this. It's beautifully done, but it's also casual and lighthearted. So it's like sitting down with a friend and analyzing a movie or a book. What motivated you to write this particular book and why now?
1: Oh, well, first of all, thank you for the very kind words. And I have to say, you're exactly the kind of reader that when people are asking me advice to give to people, I actually am nowadays telling people to try to read more slowly. I'm trying to tell that to myself (laughs) as well. (laughs) I think it's really important to read more slowly, especially in this kind of hyper-exaggerated attention economy, we're always being asked to read the next new thing, to not miss out on whatever cultural FOMO is in the air, is in the zeitgeist, and I think it'd be a lot healthier for us. To be able to read more slowly to take our time to read weird things to read things from different generations so i'm all here for reading slowly (laughs) i think what motivated me to write the book well the one-liner i've been giving to people is that well either It was write this book, or I was just going to leave literature entirely. Mm. I mean, the practical genesis of the book was that I was still on book tour. I started writing it in a fugue state, although there are other things that I had written prior to this moment that also made their way into the book. But I started writing it and understanding that I was writing a book in New Zealand. I was in New Zealand for a writers' festival. It was a kind of combination between Australia and New Zealand, the Sydney Writers' Festival and the Auckland Writers' Festival. And both were amazing experiences. But it was in New Zealand. I had kind of a it's very cliche. I don't really expect myself to have these experiences, but kind of a epiphanic life or mind altering or expanding experience in another country. I was very anxious about it at the beginning. I was like, oh God, is this like, eat, pray, love? What am I doing? But then I also had to surrender to what I was feeling, which was something special. I've been thinking recently about travel writing and how fraught it is as a genre, how, I mean, ultimately the colonial history of travel writing and neo-colonial history of travel writing is basically like white dudes in Asia, (laughs) India, and being like... (laughs) And now look at these exotic places. Yes, exotic places, absolutely. Look at these mangoes, look at how these people live. I think anyone who has been on the other side of travel writing, as certainly I have, I mean, the amount of white writers who have written about the Filipino diaspora sensationally, our (laughs) legion. So having been on the other side of that, then finding myself in a position where I essentially was about to start writing travel writing, I felt very ambivalent and conflicted about it. But there is also the travel writing of someone like James Baldwin, who wrote beautifully and Mm. incisively about his experiences in France and in Switzerland in ways that illuminated his experience in those places while also illuminating something particular about home hmm. in ways that reach conclusions he might not have been able to reach had he not been outside hmm. so I held on to that as an example of travel writing that doesn't suck <laughs> not that mine is anywhere near that category but I have a kind of lodestar helps but that was really how the book began
0: did you along the way find or discover anything about
1: your personality I mean one of the things is that I am a fast reader and I do think I need to slow down <laughs> that's why I've been telling myself I need to slow down but I think the other thing Thing well, as the book makes very clear, I am a Virgo. (laughs) And I think the way I joke, which I'm sure my friends and family realize this is not a joke, is that my love language is basically nonstop criticism. So that I think comes out in the book. But I think I also put up a big game about my own cynicism or pessimism or grimness. And I think in writing the book, especially from the beginning in the intro or in the author's note, I say something about how I wrote the book at the time when I have possibly the least faith I've ever had in books. I can't even say that I grew up loving books. It would be like saying you grew up loving your arm. You know, they were such an integral part in my life. And I can only remember one time where I didn't read. And that was basically in the years following my father's death. And I stopped reading and mm-hmm. I stopped writing. And that was the only time in my life where I really felt like I didn't want to escape into books, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I think I suddenly had this not the kind of Adorno thinking that it would be barbaric to read books, but I think I was questioning my own tendency to flee into books. And I think after that, what felt like this kind of axis moving event in my life, I stopped reading then. And that's the only time. But I think, you know, having then started again a few years later, books once again remained so central to my life. So I think it was the act of publishing and being on book tour and seeing the ways that the books of writers of color were being instrumentalized in very specific ways Hmm. versus the books by white writers and the ways that the work of white writers was being framed in our literary discourse. Those were the kinds of things that made me think, okay, well, it just doesn't seem like there's any viable way to continue in this industry without talking about it.
0: So let's talk about that. How do you think the work of white writers is being framed or positioned in the literary discourse in America right now?
1: Well, I think the essay that talks about this the most is one of the earlier essays. Reading teaches us empathy and other fictions. Mm -hmm. It's an essay that takes this cliche idea that I think a lot of us are spoon-fed, which is that reading helps teach us empathy. And it's the kind of argument that's often paste it on particularly to like diversity initiatives around like oh we need to read more immigrant writers we need to read more queer writers because that will exercise our empathy muscles and ultimately what it ends up reducing the work of writers of color to is that what writers of color end up acting as kinds of personal trainers which is to say we're supposed to train these empathy muscles in this presumed white readership which is to say that we end up going to writers of color to learn the specific is what I say in the book. And yet we go to white writers to feel the universal. I think one of the examples I gave to an interview is that during that entire book tour for my first book, I've been on many, many, many panel events. And I'd never been on a panel event that was just like women, Mm. (laughs) women writers. It was always like politics of identity Mm. or or politics of immigration or politics of revolution and drama and how to write trauma and how to write war. you know. And I was like, well, okay. So if you're writing about, queer women in a Filipino diaspora or whatever, you're always writing about a specific community. Whereas if you're writing about queer white women, apparently you're just writing about femininity, right? period. And I think what was starting to just become clear to me is that not only was that the kind of logic of books as empathy machines absurd in and of itself, but also the way we were talking about it was talking about only books by writers of color as empathy machines. And yet on the other side of that discourse was all of this weaponizing free speech discourse essentially to protect particularly white writers and cis white writers from having to be critiqued or analyzed on subjects about their racism or their transphobia. But no one was saying that reading someone like, I mean, that essay in particular takes a very long critical reading of Peter Hatke, who's the Austrian writer who won the Nobel Prize and who was also very publicly supporter of Slobodan Milozovich. He's a very well-known case. No one is ever telling us that when you say, oh, well, I just want to read him in a non-political way, we have to separate the art from the artist, that that is also a practice that's obliging particular types of empathy from us. That's asking readers to say, well, empathize with this white supremacist. Right. I think you can make that argument, but then make it. Don't just tell me you're reading this person because it's great art.
0: Right. All of this makes so much sense, Elaine. And I was going to quote that line that you just shared with us, because that really spoke to me about how we go to people of color for specific and then white folks for the universal. And it's not specific to literary discourse, it just transcends every discipline, right? Absolutely. So I remember I was doing a season of Immigrantly on Love and Relationships, and somebody said something that really stood out, and it was crass at the time, but it made sense that, oh, nobody is interested in a Muslim slash brown woman's love life Mm -hmm. in America, right? People are more focused on commodification of... Trauma. And I think it also feeds into this idea of white savior, Mm -hmm. right? So Mm -hmm. if you are commodifying minority trauma, which is not your trauma, it's somebody else's trauma. So it really doesn't impact you. It also allows you to act as a savior. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's been happening in American political, social, literary discourse for the longest time. And that's why I think your book is such an important read for a lot of people. Extending that conversation, you also to bring up among many other important points, point about we are overeducated, right? Mm -hmm. In social systems like white supremacy and heteronormativity. What do you mean by overeducated and what do you think is the solution to that?
1: I really love the point that you made earlier about the remark that was crass at the time. We're talking about the commodification of not only the work of writers of color, but particularly the commodification of certain work and certain work that is seen to be lucrative, that seem to be valuable because it satisfies the impulses of a white savior reader that obviously has to be dismantled it also has to be dismantled because it reduces our ability to have nuance about what we write because i think the knee-jerk response to that is we should just stop producing narratives of trauma then but at the same time there's many of us who do experience trauma who want to talk about the intersections between historical political Mm. intercommunal inter-asian conflicts and trauma in ways that have to be able to be parsed and understood by a critical readership, that is not reading those stories in order to satisfy some white savior impulse in themselves. And that's not reading them to say, well, wow, really sucks to be you. Yeah. <laughs> or oh, wow, your story really made me feel something. As opposed to the kind of mutual vulnerability, mutual recognition that happens when you read a work of art that involves you, that engages you, that is not just asking you to be a tourist on a safari, but that's asking you to question well, how do politics and the self and being a woman in the community, being a queer person in the community, how do all of those things impact you? I think that's the ultimate understanding, I think towards the end of that reading teaches this empathy essay. That's the point that I start to get into thinking about moving away from this idea that, oh, well, the most important thing in our artistic practice is freedom. I want the freedom to be able to write whatever I want, which is usually just weaponized to be like, well, I want the freedom to write things, never be criticized about it and live with impunity. Yeah. But to think about our artistic practices as ones that unearth places where we are interconnected, where we're bonded with each other in ways that are often difficult, often painful, but can be revelatory. Going back to the trauma
0: bit, I think it's also important to recognize that most of the times creatives of color are put in a situation where they know that the trauma that they share or the experiences that they share are rewarded versus their mundane life, right? So what I watch on Netflix or what my love life is like, doesn't matter what matters is that i'm a muslim woman and what my experiences are from that vantage point and mm-hmm. unless we shift the narrative to normalizing regular mundane lives of people other than white folks mm-hmm. we'll be stuck in this because if we are told time and again oh this story doesn't matter but your trauma mm-hmm. yes that's something that we can sell mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So it's a vicious circle that unfortunately all of us go through.
1: Yeah, I think about that all the time. I remember, I think I'm on my first book tour. The word I was saying a lot was banality, banality. The thing that I hold on to is banality. I mean, in that novel, it was so important to write about the dailiness of that particular Filipinx community in the 90s. And absolutely, yeah. It also just matters how we're read, how that work is circulated. Is it circulated because people are like, well, you know, you just learned about the terrible Marcos regime? Read this book to whet your appetite for more.
0: I love it. Going back to the over-educated bit, and I have my thoughts. So once you explain that, I'll share my thoughts on what I felt when I read that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the way I frame it in the essay is that I think a lot of times the way that discourse is deployed is... Through the logic of ignorance, which is that, oh, just people just don't know, or people are just ignorant, and my grandma really is ignorant, or they came from another time, and they were really ignorant. And we don't give any credit to the fact that white supremacy, heteropatriarchy, heteronormativity are very distinct educational systems. We're saturated in these economies. They were saturated in every TV show that kills off characters of color first in order to forward the main hetero narrative or kills off queer characters or has queer handmaidens at the side while the main hetero couple rides off into the sunset, all of these things are building our education. I think it's the same logic as why we don't think of reading the work of Peter Hanka or the work of JK Rowling Mm. as obliging empathy from Mm. us for its own specific radical political use. I think a lot of times when we think about like radical political education, I think we're often, we use that language only to talk about progressive political education, progressive causes. I think there's less understanding that there is a very successful radical political re-education and ongoing education happening. And Mm -hmm. it's just, I won't speak for you, but it's just not our side. You know, Mm -hmm. I think white supremacy has done a great job in its collective education.
0: Do you think it has anything to do with the fact that as humans, we are conditioned to self-preserve, self-promote, and all of these stories that center on white supremacy or heteronormativity are doing just that in a white dominant population and their consumption just becomes a default to So it's not that they are being overexposed to this kind of narrative. That's the kind of narrative that they want to internalize and absorb.
1: I don't know if it's because of uh, just self-promotion because they're just the majority. I think what we're talking about here is hegemony, right? Mm. I mean, comparatively, Britain is a very, very small island. There is no reason yeah. why such a huge swath of the world should have been colonized by Britain. And yet, when I go to Commonwealth countries and I see the Queen on money... Oh my gosh, I mean, why? It's heavy. It's a heavy knowledge. I mean, it's been a joy to see the recent Commonwealth countries just being like, peace out, bye, we're leaving.
0: <laughs> why are we still obsessed with british monarchy who were looters and murderers and so much more why oh we will derail the
1: conversation if we start talking about <laughs> i mean i did live in london for almost 10 years i think i talk about it a little bit in the book so i have very strong <laughs> feelings about it. i mean i have a lot of people i love in britain also but Yeah, I have very strong feelings about the British Empire and its after effects, or the discontents, the half-life of the British Empire, shall we say. But yeah, I mean, I think what we're talking about is hegemony, and I think we shouldn't discount the real effort that goes into Mm. reproducing those beliefs, and reproducing those beliefs across the world. I mean, the sad thing about white supremacy is that it doesn't always necessarily need a white population to uphold it. I mean, white supremacy is very alive in the Philippines through the colorism that exists, not just in the Philippines, obviously, in the entire diaspora, certainly in the diaspora that I grew up in. I mean, I was very aware that I was Morena and that the beauty ideal within my larger community was someone who looked like my mom, who was much lighter skinned. The kind of practice of all, like the dark skinned dudes in my family all having lighter skin, that was very prevalent. Very similar to South Asian Culture. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. White supremacy, it's like one of those viruses that can keep replicating itself, gets mm-hmm. stronger as it replicates, finds different ways to survive.
0: Elaine, I want to pivot a little and go back to specifics of literary discourse, not just in America, but generally speaking. In what ways do you think literary engagement is civic engagement? I mean, I can see that through your book, but I just wanted to get your thoughts on it.
1: Well, I think that's why in the book I talk about how I come from it as a book reader, of course, because of my father, but because, you know, I also grew up watching a lot of television, watching a lot of movies, and also just being in the world. But ultimately, I wanted to talk about reading not just as a practice that was limited to the world of books. Hmm. You know, so that's why there are essays about X Men and the right. HBO show Watchmen. The mutants are very real. And they are among us. We can save this world. And there's essays about, you know, my experiences hiking in New Zealand and the ways that civic parks and national parks and the placards, there was a defaced Mm. placard that I had seen in Queenstown that becomes the subject of an analysis about how we ask ourselves to read quote-unquote natural landscapes that nevertheless have colonial history written in them. Mm. And comparing that, in a sense, to the climate issues, not just in... California, I mean, obviously in the state that I grew up in, which I mean, we have a fire season now, but also, of course, the Philippines. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Philippines just very recently had an earthquake in the region where my father grew up and his hometown and towns where people my family live have been affected some of the colonial architecture which you know, is another <laughs> that's another subject for debate but has also been damaged in the wake of that earthquake so I'm also thinking about the way it functions for me in a civic way is I'm also just thinking about how we engage with the world that we are living in and the reason I wanted to not focus only on books is because ultimately I don't come from a community of big readers You know, besides my father no one else was like a huge reader and I think a lot of people also rightly so can feel intimidated by the world of reading there can be sort of elitist or gatekeeping energy around Mm. the literary world that can make someone who you know is working class or is not white or didn't have an english degree feel like it's not a place for them Mm. so i wanted to make those people feel Like this book was also speaking to them, but I also wanted those people in my community to also not feel let off the hook if I was saying, well, I'm critiquing books. They're like, well, oh, I don't read books. That's (sighs) not part of me. I am like, well, you watch X-Men, right? Or you sometimes go hiking in parks, right? So I think the whole issues around civic monuments and what they mean. I think in the essay, I talk about how I don't think reading brings us to books. I think books can bring us to reading, which is to say, reading is a critical practice, a way of engaging in the world, of being in the world. So
0: you bring up an important point that this goes beyond reading. How are you intentional about consumption of information?
1: I don't think I'm free from the pitfalls of consumption in the kind of attention economy. I don't think I'm free from the pitfalls that we all fall into. I mean, I'm watching the same TV shows. I mean, yes, I have my Virgo hat on and it doesn't turn off ever. I mean, if we start talking about Bridgerton or the persuasion (laughs) adaptation, we'll be here for another two hours. You know, it's so interesting you bring up
0: that, Elaine, because I feel I'm hyper aware when I'm watching yeah. to the point where everybody else in my family is like, just chill, just watch it yeah, for yeah, yeah. the fun of it. But I cannot, yeah. I cannot disengage or divorce myself from those feelings. And I think yeah. I can see that happening to you as well. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that absolutely happens to me. But I think what I hopefully want to convey also is that that criticism or having that critical eye on doesn't preclude us from the absolute joys and sensual pleasures and emotional pleasures and opulence of art and of enjoying art and I think certainly that's true for me I mean I definitely to paraphrase the critic Sarah Ahmed's phrase feminist kill choice I mean I definitely have been that in my family <laughs> I accept that role wholeheartedly and maybe this goes back to the idea that I don't believe in that kind of separating the art from the artist cliche I don't think that because I criticize a work of art for doing something that then precludes me entirely from enjoying it sometimes I mean sometimes it does sometimes I'll watch something usually I'm the person who watches something like this is just terrible y'all it's not even it's not even a, it, it doesn't even get to the point of being a thorough critique I was just like this is boring this is not beautiful I won't say which shows I mean you can follow again but then there's plenty of shows where I'll go okay well politically all of this is trash Hmm. that particular bit is delightful and it's not necessarily a pick and choose situation I think that's just the complexity of being a person in any age it's also the complexity that I think we in some way owe to art you know art demands that of us I think any piece of art great art or otherwise asks us to live in its complexity so the least we can do is to live up to that it's a compliment to the art to be able to have all of those feelings for it as opposed to being like well this was mid I'm leaving (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious and if you're not comfortable,
0: you don't have to. But is there a particular show that you recently watched and you were like, this is
1: trash? <laughs> oh, oh, I'm going to get in trouble. I'm going to get in trouble. Well, I mean, I have not finished the Persuasion adaptation because two minutes of it and I was screaming. Persuasion is my favorite, Jane Austen. And I have been screaming to people that the current adaptation of Persuasion is Earth sign erasure. <laughs> Just because for me, firmly, I've been telling people recently, Anne Elliot is an Earth giant. She's a Capricorn, a tourist or a Virgo she is not a water sign or a fire sign or whatever this adaptation (laughs) is trying to make us believe we need sensible repressed people representation I'm saying this as someone who considers herself a sensible repressed person (laughs) I was like you can't take this from us
0: I love it I didn't even try to watch it I'm like I'm not going there but In the end, I normally ask my guests to define America in a word or a sentence. But with you, I want to tweak this a little. And I want to talk about something that I have spoken a lot on my podcasts, but I've never, I think, asked a guest, the American dream. Does it even exist? And how do you think folks are approaching it now versus in the 70s and the 80s how has it changed
1: well i love that you complicate that question by asking to compare it with how it might have existed for people in the 70s and 80s cuz i do think those are two very different conceptions of what we might call the american dream i mean certainly for my mom it was a real thing yeah and i think the people who are invested in the people who believe in it i mean certainly in my family it's absolutely a question that is inflected by class i mean my mom believed in it because mm-hmm. she grew up poor in the philippines and There's a line that I wrote in my first novel, which is the first thing, of course, I'm not going to remember my own line. (laughs) The first thing that, (laughs) I'm like, it's been four years. (laughs) The first thing that makes you foreign to a place is to be born poor in it. And I think that line applied to my mom, for sure. I think she felt very early on that her poverty already de facto made her foreign to the country that she was living in and for lots of women in her generation and for lots of women that she knew of the idea. I mean, where does this idea get put Mm -hmm. into her head? Obviously the legacy of American colonialism in the Philippines that says, well, come and be a nurse and ultimately bulk up this overseas workforce that our entire medical system is based on. You know, but my mom answered that call very enthusiastically. So I think she can hear me critique America all day, every day. And she does as well. I mean, she's been a diehard Democrat my whole life. And she also has a critical relationship to America. But I think she absolutely would still, you know, she came out of the Marcos regime. She remembers being in her dorm during the curfews. And I'm describing this because we're living in an era now where that history is being expunged and erased and called the golden era with the rise of the new marco's president so remembering my mom's stories and and her telling those stories has always been important but particularly now so i think for her the idea that the american dream is not true that wouldn't make sense to her for her she very much believed it for my father an absolute travesty from top to bottom my father never (laughs) believed in it (laughs) you know my father came for very specific Reason became late in his life. He was never able to practice as a surgeon. Like many immigrant parents who perform one job in their home country and are never able to practice. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, my father had lots of friends who had been lawyers in Vietnam and were now his security guard colleagues and co workers. So I think for him, he had a much more clear eyed and Well, I wouldn't say much more clear-eyed. I think both are clear-eyed, but just come from different perspectives. And Mm. you know, he also did not come from poverty. He came from Mm. a life of relative privilege in the Philippines. So for him, he was like, well, life was better in the Philippines, to be frank. So, I mean, that's also a privilege to not have to need the American dream. And I think I think about that also for myself, because I think the fact that I was born in America That in itself gives me a privilege because I too don't need the American dream. I don't need to dream about it. I'm here. I'm of it. Whether or not that dream is real.
0: I love that answer. It brings up so many emotions for me. I can in some ways relate to your father's experiences because we grew up in a relatively privileged household in Pakistan. And for me, American dream was less about the American dream and more Mm. of an adventure going to a new country and just experiencing it in my early 20s and that was it like American dream was never part of my consciousness and that's why I think I am able to critique it more because it's not personal to me in a way
1: yeah, that's how I think I feel about it. Being born here gave me the privilege of not needing that dream. I
0: love it, Elaine. This is wonderful. So in the end, because I want every single person to read your book, where can they find it? Is there a special bookstore that you want to give a shout out to that people can order from?
1: Oh, that's lovely. Well, I just did a wonderful dual event with Loyalty Bookstore in DC, which is a black and queer owned bookstore. Mm-hmm. And they did a joint event with Belcanto Canto in Long Beach, which is a Filipina owned bookstore they're both fantastic amazing passionate booksellers who've been supportive but any independent bookstore any well I mean I'm also not shaming people who buy their books wherever I mean I've been there (laughs) I've been there I know how it goes (laughs) but ideally yes support your local bookstores support your local minority-owned bookstores wherever you may be but Yeah, I'm thinking of loyalty in Belcanto right now because we just did an event with them.
0: Love it. When are you coming to New York or have you already been? I
1: haven't been to New York. There's something that's maybe cooking in the works. I'm trying to, (laughs) because I have a dog now, I feel like I'm trying to limit how much I travel. She's also going through chemo at the moment. She's got cancer, so I think I'm also... I mean, I think it's also just after a couple of years of pandemic, traveling is such a strange thing. to. I haven't been on a plane in two years, mm. but also, yeah, I mean, people talk about dogs having separation anxiety, but I think I am the one with separation yeah. anxiety from my dog. I'm so sorry to hear that, oh, but you're you. right.
0: It's difficult to get on the plane for somebody like me who's anxious always to get on a plane (laughs) and now it's gotten worse oh my gosh yeah but this was so good Elaine and thank you for being so honest and creating something that is so meaningful and so timely oh thank
1: you so much for all the kind words this was really wonderful thank you
0: you know what Elaine's book How to Read Now is my favorite book because As I was reading it, I felt as if somebody had synthesized my thoughts and put them on a piece of paper. If you haven't read this book, you're missing out on something very important, timely and a great read. This episode was produced by me, Sadia Khan, written by Ashley Linuza and me, editorial review by UD Liu. And our editor is Manny Simone. We are waiting for you guys to send us some interesting ideas for our upcoming episodes so do share your ideas you can follow us on instagram at immigrantly pod and twitter at immigrantly underscore pod and please if you like immigrantly if you like the stories we are telling subscribe to our patreon for as low as five dollars a month guys come on it's just one starbucks coffee try helping us because that's how we sustain this podcast Take care until next time.